Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of The Overlap. Of course, we've we've talked a little bit about England, you know, this week and, and what's gone on last weekend in the Murrayside, Murrayside Derby, right? Once again, I'm saying Mer- Derby. Merseys, Merseyside. Oh, my God. I can't I can't speak English anymore because I, I was telling Rian earlier, like, I, I, I'm starting to say Derby now instead of Derby. So uh, one English word for another. I, I don't know. But w- we talked a lot about England and whatever the hell is going on over there, both with project big future. Um, I keep saying big future. It's big picture. <laughs> See, I, I honestly forgot how to speak English. Yeah. Wow. I, I just want to formally is, hand in already, my... is already the, the immigrant, the, the immigrant middle-aged parent who says <laughs> every word wrong. It just says like fits in a new word every time he says it. It's like, I mean, basically, <laughs> like I basically just got every word wrong in the intro. But what I mean, yeah, I should basically resign from the podcast at this point. This is ridiculous. I, it's been a long day for for Rian and I. Rian and I got on. We started talking about oh, let's let's get started and. And then we both had work come up, so we had to start like 15 minutes later. So that's where our lives are at. But this is our respite from all of that. This is how we get away. And we're going to be talking a little bit of what happened in Spain this weekend and focus in on La Liga because four, three, I should say, of the top four teams in La Liga this weekend dropped points. Not only did they drop points, they lost as well. So, Rian, we watched the Barcelona Hatafe game this weekend on Sunday, but there were, I mean, the weekend started off with a very interesting Atletico Madrid side taking on a Celta Vigo side that really just does not have any striking power. So I, I remember vividly texting you saying Diego Costa and Luis Suarez are in fact starting together on the pitch. Could you just walk me through your, visceral reactions to uh to that that statement um i i mean my first impressions of that were not great when, when elias uh told me that the probably the most feared twosome you could you could come up against as a defender and not feared because of the goals they might score against you but more for your own bodily harm the the fact that uh you know Costa and Suarez it's a strike partnership that I don't think anyone thought they would see, nor I don't remember anyone really clamoring to see this and and um wanting to see how well would Luis Suarez and Diego Costa play together. But alas, um Atleti did just enough to win on Saturday. And I mean, I stress just enough because it really feels like that is the way to describe a lot of their wins um, or more of their wins than not, especially in the last, I think, year or so under Simeone. But Elias, you tell me any sort of progress that we saw from Atleti this weekend and we we don't even have to discuss what happened to them today against Bayern. But <laughs> But uh, but from week to week, are you seeing this Atleti team show any sort of progress or anything close to what we were almost conned into believing on the first day when they scored six goals? 
Yeah, it's it's funny. We really haven't seen Atletico return to that level since the the first match day of the season, where of course they won six one. And honestly, they weren't impressive at all this weekend. Like I, I woke up to to watch this game on Saturday morning, and I was thinking, okay, Celta Vigo aside that really only have Barry Aspas as their main striker are not really, you know, soaking in goals defensively somewhat sound, but again, not really because I'm going to go back on that. They were nearly relegated last season. Um, just an overall weaker side than what they should be. And I figured, well, an Atletico side, a part of me almost thought this is kind of smart from Simeone because you're basically using two strikers and it's Suarez and Diego Costa that, sit in a low block or sit behind a low block, which Celta Vigo, I thought, would have played that way. But in reality, we quickly quickly found out that Celta Vigo have more pace on the wings, uh, more pace in uh, in the middle of the park. And, uh, oh, also, they can run past, you know, your quote-unquote press of Diego Costa and Luis Suarez. It's basically like Atletico were playing with nine players. That That is not a joke. Like, Jao Felix came on in the second half as a 10th man. So it was really disheartening, especially in kind of the, the later stages of the first half and the beginning stages of the second half. Celta Vigo were all over Atletico Madrid. Of course, at this point, Suarez had, had scored in the very early minutes um, and put them up 1-0. But Celta Vigo easily could have scored three goals within the span of about... 20 minutes towards the end of the first half and beginning of the second half. They hit the post once. They missed two clear sitters. Like, it was it was really, really embarrassing for Atletico Madrid. So I was not impressed with them at all um, over the weekend. And it's kind of a miracle that they came out with a win. But again, this goes back to my theory about talent always shines through. So I think at the end of the day, it was a product of that because Atletico did take their chances as limited as they were. Whereas Celta did not. And I think that's what this game came down to. And if you even want to delve into the Champions League battering that happened today against Bayern, where, of course, Atleti lost 4-0, you see what Atleti cannot do against better quality sides. And that is press. And that is get behind uh, any type of low block because they just don't have the pace in front. So that those are my thoughts on Atletico Madrid. I was just not impressed with them at all this weekend. Uh, and I think you make a great point about that playing Costa and Suarez up top, what you lose from the press. Granted, it's a Diego Simeone team, so it, it's not a team that really stresses the high press itself. But I think what you're trying to say, like without the ball, they pretty much are pressing wise. They might as well be playing with nine men. Um, it's too easy to get into their midfield. And it's too easy as we saw today against Bayern to get past their wingers. And especially Kieran Trippier having some trouble defensively, which was always the downside of his game was, was his defensive positioning and, and ability to deal with pacey wingers. And it's something that I don't know what's going to change. Um, as long as this kind of reluctance to be adventurous in any sort of way from the from the front too, um, as long as as long as that's almost non-existent from Diego Simeone, 
And, you know, we saw today that it was Marcos Llorente and Suarez playing up top against Bayern. And again, it's something that's, you play Llorente, who's a bit more of a defensive forward and, and someone's going to help better with a defensive shape in theory, right? But I don't know, we're not, we're still not seeing that this team really make any sort of progress in the last 12 months. And, and I know I keep harping on this and I feel like a broken record about it, but the other thing I, I wanted to note, a rare Thomas Lamar start this past weekend. Yeah. I, Ellis, I don't even know where to start with that <laughs> because if Thomas Lamar was bought by uh, Arsenal or Chelsea, or if, if this was a transfer that happened to a, a major English club, we would be, Screaming at the top of our lungs, what the hell was this? I mean, there, I don't know if there's been a more of a failed transfer of a player who costs 80 million euros, by the way, for Atletico Madrid. I I don't know if there's a more failed signing. Uh, I should say of an outfield player, because, yes, as a Chelsea fan here, I, I know what the what the more obvious one might be, but. For an outfield player, I can't remember a worse signing in the last four years. In the last four years across Europe, Thomas Lamar has to be near the top of it for the price tag that Atletico paid. I think the price tag is a big point because there are some things that Thomas Lamar does well in this Atletico side that no one else can do. It's a lot of running. It's a lot of covering of ground. Um, I'll give him that. I, I don't think he's the most, you know, technically apt player in the world, but he does cover a lot of ground for Atletico, and that's something that Simeone values. So I'll give him that. But for eighty million euros, I, it's hard to think of why. It really is. It just of that caliber in terms of just monetary value. I, I don't know what Atletico were thinking. I think it was. He was very much in a different form uh, a couple of years ago, but now it's just a completely different player, basically that they're that they're watching. So, yeah, I, I don't know what Atletico are thinking about him, but he basically has to step into Partey's old role, and he is not capable of that, in my opinion. I just don't think that he has the quality that Partey did. That's true, but he's also a winger, and, and it's and it's uh, an area that. It has to be, like you said, very strong for for Simeone's side in terms of the work rate. It really makes me uh, slightly nervous for João Felix because Thomas Lamar was a great attacker for that Monaco side that made it, that ended up making it to the semifinals of the Champions League uh, a few years ago. And before he went to Atleti, I mean, he was linked with just about every big club. I, I remember Arsenal being a, uh, one of the big ones. It's... It's somehow maybe one of those things that I think does happen with a lot with players and a a lot of transfers where you just go to the wrong system or the wrong coach for for the development of the player. And and it's it's always very tough to see to see a player go and go and get their big transfer um, and just not be able to live up to it. And all that being said, Thomas Lamar is still 24 years old. So it, it, it's not, it's not over, but, but 
it's hard to see his career take the next step at Atletico and and under the same coach as as is. So it, who knows? Maybe, maybe in another club, or maybe in a different system, or a different coach in the future. Maybe things change, but um, it does seem like the Thomas Lamar project experience has um, has really been a lose lose for each party. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. The thing is, I don't know who is really a good replacement for him. Um, I, I'm struggling to come up with names. The first name that would have come to mind is Ferran Torres from Valencia before he went to um, Manchester City over the summer. But yeah, that was never going to happen. So I, I don't know. That's the thing with Atletico. They haven't progressed right in the last 12 months. I mean, Rian said it best. They just have not showed a step in quality in the right direction, right? In signings on paper, maybe yes, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything until you show it. So Suarez, great signing for what they seemingly needed in goals, but it's clear that they're, they're lacking a couple of other structural components. And I don't know, like I said, at the end of the season, I think we're going to see Simeone very much second guess. Yeah. So it's only a matter of time, but you know, the, the roots of Diego Simeone and Atletico Madrid will make it very difficult. I think for them to make the, for them to make that, um, that decision, especially in the middle of the season. But it's, it's something we've been talking about and we're keeping our eye on for the end of the season. It could we it could be the end of the uh, Simeone reign. But shall we move on, Elias, to the to the other top teams in Spain that actually did win, lose this weekend? <laughs> Let, yeah, let's move on. Before we get to Barcelona, let's move on to Real Madrid and Cadiz. Cadiz, the team that were promoted from the second division in Spain, who have such a rich history, especially with their fans. And just seeing them back in uh, La Liga this season has been really, really fun to watch. So they are clearly a side that just basically don't give a shit. They don't care who you are. They're going to try and play you off the park and play their style. They're almost like the leads of Spain. That's, that's how I would categorize it. So Real Madrid, of course, come in at their, you can't really call it the home stadium because it's their training grounds, which is where they're holding La Liga games. But they come in after an international break where they're thinking, okay, we have Cadiz this upcoming weekend. We can probably get past them because then we have an important Champions League game and then the Classico and then another Champions League game. So, of course, Zinedine Zidane comes out and says, I'm going to go a little safe here. I don't need to, or, excuse me, I'm, I'm going to go a little more risky, really, and just kind of play, you know, players that have either not been played that much or maybe did not play that much over the international break. Really not my top 11. Cadiz, who easily could have scored three to four goals, easily, if they had a, you know, basically a better striker, um, I mean, this could have been a completely different game. Real Madrid were completely played off of the park. Like, I I almost think that for those of you that watched the Shakhtar Donetsk game today, if you're thinking at the first half, wow, this is a really bad game, go back and watch the first half of that Cadiz-Real Madrid game. Because I would argue that that game 
was worse for Real Madrid over the weekend. They played so poorly. And to see the likes of Isco and Tony Cruz and Casemiro just be completely run over was, ah, chef's kiss. Just amazing stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, I think Real Madrid are, like I said at the, in my La Liga preview, a bad team. I said that they are worse than Barcelona. And yes, Barcelona did lose, but they lost to a completely different caliber team. So in my opinion, this is this is genuinely a worrying sign. From an objective standpoint, I think it's genuinely a worrying sign that Real Madrid, A, cannot do this without Martin Odegaard, um, who of course is, is out with COVID slash injury. Um, and I, I don't think that they have the players right now for basically building for the future that they would like. They think they do, right? In Valverde and Odegaard, right? And Kubo, who's on loan. They think they have those players. But for for the current period, right, you basically have four to five players that need to be replaced virtually immediately. Sergio Ramos, which you could argue is, you know, you don't have to necessarily place it, replace him immediately, but you do. Um, Tony Cruz, Luka Modric, and Kareem Benzema. Four players that are integral. In, intri- I can't talk. What's the word? <laughs> intricate. Intricate. Intr- no, sorry. No. In- integral. Integral. Inter- integral. I combined wow. integral. Wow, you can combine two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Integral. Yes, that's my new word. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Yes, they're integral to this Real Madrid side. What happens if one of them is out? Vinicius, I think, has done a great job of stepping into the mold. I will give him that this season. But Militao for Sergio Ramos... Valverde for Tony Cruz or Isco, I should even say, who has not played that much and had virtually no consistency. They let go of James. So who who do you who do you replace that can step up into the mold? Again, I don't I don't know who that player is. And this strategy from Real Madrid of waiting for Erling Holland or Kylian Mbappe to come next summer is a very much a bargain. It, it, it might be a safe bet. But it could also be a hazard-like bet, and I, I don't know how that's going to gonna go for them. So I think they need to look a little bit more internally and do some soul-searching before they go out and sign Kylian Mbappe for a record fee. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the funny thing about all of this is Madrid, even from the restart, um, from the COVID restart, just about – just about getting by in a lot of games and, and on some admittedly very uh, touch and go penalty calls, especially during that, during that restart. But I, I think that you hit on it very well. in the fact that the team needs some freshening up of some sort, right. And yeah, their big bargain is waiting until next summer, pretty much to, as we saw this past summer, they didn't spend on virtually any players and held their money. They turned a a little profit even from the last season. And, um, and they're holding off for, for definitely Mbappe and, and the rumored release clause of uh, Erling Holland. But the issues are, I, I feel like I end up talking about this every week um, when it comes to a team that that we feel is struggling in some sense, it's the midfield. You know, something we saw today against uh, Shakhtar is a midfield of Casemiro, um, 
Casemiro's well, Fede Valverde stayed on as Real Madrid were down three goals. And then even when they were down by just one goal for the last half hour of the, of that match, uh, Zidane persisting with these two midfielders who are defensively solid and well-organized players, but completely lacking a spark. And I suppose that is where Martin Odegaard comes in. Right. And, and that's, and that's where they're reliant on right now, but that's a lot to put on Martin Odegaard. Right. Uh, and especially with Eden Hazard looking like he's going to be out until the end of November now. Right. So it's concerning really. I am very concerned about, about Madrid for this season, particularly and, and perhaps Zidane, for this season too, but um, we'll see. We'll see, right? You know, you know what's funny about the whole Zidane narrative now, and and I think Rian and I have really been more speaking into existence. I remember the PSG game where they got kind of blown out last season at the beginning of the season, when everyone was like, "Oh, if this doesn't turn around," because I think that was also a time where the Clasico was coming up, and everyone was saying, "If this doesn't turn around, this could be this could be bad for Zidane." Just the way that they played. And of course, Real Madrid did go on to win La Liga uh, at the end of the season. So it's times like this where Zidane's black magic really comes out. And so I don't know what to expect during the Clasico on Saturday, but we'll get to that later on in the podcast. So I'll hold my tongue. Rian, do you want to move on to Barcelona before, uh, before I go crazy thinking about Zidane and black magic? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so... Rian and I, like I said at the beginning, watched this game together, and I think the best way to describe this game is that Rian fell asleep about halfway through. And and honestly, I I don't blame him. I completely do not blame him. Um, he he was completely in his right to do that, and it was largely because the game was boring as hell. And yeah, I would have fallen asleep if I wasn't a Barcelona fan either. It was, of course, a, a one nil Hitafe win. Um, in which a penalty um, on ah, God knows what kind of call that was, but um, fair. I'll let that slide. Um, yeah. Just a, a penalty that I don't want to get into it. Anyway, Rian thoughts on the game for the parts that you were awake for. Um, thoughts on it. I mean, my thoughts are I still don't know what the hell they're doing with Antoine Griezmann. And I don't think Antoine Griezmann knows what the hell they're doing with him either. Other than just fluidity is what I, is what I assume that uh, Ronald Koeman would like from that front three or slash four um, is for them to be very fluid and move, change positions a lot, but it still always feels a lot of the time feels very awkward um, with him and Messi on the pitch together uh, and without real direction, I think, of where they should be on the pitch together. And you might say that they're both professionals. They're both long standing professionals and, and won trophies and um, and should be able to figure it out. Right. But for two players that play in a very similar position and then you throw in Coutinho, who similarly also plays in a number 10 kind of area. Um, you know, you're, you're asking a lot of those players to just kind of figure it out. And who knows? It's still very early in the season. It, 
they might figure it out. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that it's, that there's just no way they'll figure it out. These are very intelligent footballers, but it's, it just seems a bit tenuous right now. And um, at times it's, it's not, it's not clicking and, you know, you got to give them time, but we're seeing some encouraging stuff, at least from the, the new boys that are coming in. Right. I thought Pedri played well. I, I, we saw Ansu Fati play beautifully yesterday and every game that he plays is like a breath of fresh air, really. So it's a lot to, a lot to meld still with this Barcelona attack. I, I think that they're solid defensively, uh, which is not something we could say a lot of last season. Right. But Definitely the midfield change of how Frankie de Jong and Sergio Busquets now operate together and more of a unit as a double pivot instead of um, the traditional 4-3-3 that Barcelona has, has always played in. It's gotten the best out of Frankie de Jong and I think has provided cover for Sergio Busquets, who's now not overrun in the midfield, right? So I, I think... There are all the signs, the good signs of uh, from the back to the midfield are there. It's going to take time for the forwards, but, you know, I'll always have my concern that this just doesn't quite work with Antoine Griezmann. It's not even just you that has that concern. Everyone has that concern that it does not work with Antoine Griezmann and I am starting to genuinely buy into that idea now because it's been over a year. Granted, again, COVID plus uh, weird coaching change aside, I am always of the opinion, I've said this multiple times, that good players figure it out. Talent shines through and they're able to figure out how to play together. Antoine Griezmann has not been able to fit in seamlessly into the side, both in the Ernesto Valverde system, the Kike Setien quote-unquote system, and now Ronald Koeman's system. And it was interesting after the international break where Griezmann did score for France and scored a wonderful goal. Um, during his press conference afterward, he basically said, you know, I'm not playing my preferred position at Barcelona, which is kind of why I, I feel like I'm not doing as well. And Ronald Koeman came out before the Hatafe game on Saturday and said, well, I'm the coach and you'll play where I want you to play, uh, which again, like big dick energy, but very, very valid. And I think that there's there's something to be said about that because Griezmann has had his chances and I don't mean starting chances. I mean, literally chances on goal where he has just missed. He missed a perfect one this weekend against Atafe. And that can't happen if you consider yourself a world-class striker, a world-class attacker, I should say, because he's not really playing as a striker. But again, I do feel bad for him in some sense, some sense, because he basically has two other world-class players in Messi and Coutinho playing in his preferred position when he's playing as a pseudo right winger. And we saw not even against Hetafe, but in their Champions League game on uh, Tuesday, where Griezmann was sat on the bench. Granted, he looked like a great sport, supporting Ansu Fati and Trincao, who started in his, in his place. But we saw Trincao seamlessly fit into that side because he's a natural winger. And he's a natural winger that plays more vertically rather than horizontally, which is how Griezmann likes to play. And that vertical pace 
that Trincao provided uh, along the flanks got Barcelona in behind uh, in the Champions League on Tuesday. So I, I just I think Griezmann, as sad as this is going to say, is the perfect sub for Messi. Like I, I think he's the perfect player to slot in in front of a ten right now in front of Coutinho, who usually starts in that position now. And he will score goals in that position. He he scored throughout his career in that in that position. So I, I just I can't see a situation where he continues or he he succeeds playing where he is and how he is right now. But I do think that I I, I do think that he should get some slack. Not all of it, but some slack. So I'll I'll, I'll give him that. Yeah, and it's not. I mean, my criticism—it's never been his fault, in my opinion. Um, He's—he was brought in, like you said, into an absolutely insane situation all of last season, and has not been done any favors with um, with the selections of players in the lineup and just the overall construction of the squad. Really, and and it's it's weird to say, but he, but it, you could almost imagine that as much as Griezmann loves playing with or the opportunity to play with Lionel Messi, he had to have been in the back of his mind, kind of happy over the summer when it looked like Messi was going to go, because that seemed like the time for that it would have moved very seamlessly for him to step into Messi's role which maybe that should be, should have been the succession plan at some point, but with Messi there, this is Messi. This is sorry for the pun, literally Messi. Um, but it's, uh, it's kind of, kind of sucks that, that we're not seeing this great player who on just about any other, in any other team in the world would be the focal point and have a team being built around him, but he's gone to the one club where that's sorry. One of the two clubs, really, if you want to throw in Juventus as well, um, that it's impossible for, for the team to be uh, focused around him. Yeah. If you, if you want to make the case that Antoine Griezmann would be a perfect fit at PSG, then you have my blessing. Cause like, I kind of agree. I mean, the, the, the Cavani swap would just be, yeah, you'd be a, perfect fit for that, but I'm not going to make that case for PSG. I'm just not. So I'll leave it at that. But Rian, I think we'll take a quick break after talking through the Barcelona aspect. Obviously, a lot to look forward to in the El Clasico this weekend, which we'll preview right after the break. All right, Rian. So We've gone through the La Liga results from last weekend, but one of the most important games of the season is coming up this weekend, and I can't believe it's already near the end of October and we're talking about this. El Clasico, Rian, one of the most famous fixtures of all time in the world of football, Real Madrid-Barcelona. So, who do you think is the stronger team coming into this game? We did talk a little bit about they did this past week, both in the Champions League and La Liga, but... Classicals are different, right? It's it's a rivalry, and you know this from from every rivalry in in England and around Europe. Who do you think is the stronger side, and who do you think is going to come up or come out on top this weekend? 
It's tough. On form, I think we'd have to give the slight edge to Barcelona, right? Um, I mean, just I guess from the past week, really, it's it's hard to um, it's hard to have a lot of confidence about Madrid after what we just watched today, and especially from the past weekend. But with all that, my most important question in terms of you know who's gonna who's going to come out on top or who looks more strong going into this weekend is Elias. Are we seeing Sergio Ramos come back for Real Madrid? Because that for Real Madrid, we know that always changes. Everything is whether Sergio Ramos is in the side or not. And uh, a team that right now looks desperate for some leadership. So some on field leadership and, and just some sort of intangible that Sergio Ramos does seem to give Real Madrid in every big game, the intangibles, the leadership, the the kind of, (laughs) I I want to say just big balls, right. In every game to, to, to be the guy to step up and, and someone who actually enjoys the pressure. Cause I feel like we're missing a bit of that um, with Madrid right now. And granted there, there's always Benzema, there's always Marcelo, but they desperately miss Sergio Ramos, and and it's no coincidence that every time he doesn't play, the Real Madrid look markedly worse. One hundred percent, he provides something to the Real Madrid side, which again begs the question: Do they have a strategy to replace him because he's already in his mid thirties? Um, uh, to answer your original question, I do think that uh, Sergio Ramos plays in the Clasico this weekend. I think he does come back to fitness from his injury. Uh, of course, he didn't play today against Shakhtar Donetsk, but I, I do think that he comes back because A, it's been reported that he will come back and be fit. B, this is Sergio Ramos and him missing a Clasico would just lose La Liga too much money. So that's clearly not going to happen. But I do, I do tend to agree with you that on form, Barcelona are probably just slightly stronger. But again, you're, you're comparing Two very mediocre sides right now, in, in all honesty, and two sides that have just not shown up consistently. So I'm even more excited for this Classico because I actually don't know what to expect from a scoreline perspective. I, of course, I'm going to be hoping and praying for a Barcelona win, but I, I can easily see it being very close and seeing it be a Real Madrid win. I, I honestly think it's that close in terms of how bad and how poor these teams have been playing uh, recently. So if you had to ask me, you know, who do I think is really going to up? It's going to be something like a two-two draw. Um, the only exception is if I think Sergio Ramos does not start, then I think this could be like four-two. <laughs> then then it's a completely different story. But I do think goals are in this for sure. I don't think it's going to be cagey. I think based on the way that Barcelona structure have structured themselves now. Um, with attacking wingers that can actually get behind fullbacks. They leave, you know, some defensive spaces exposed. And we saw that, of course, against Hatafe at the weekend. And, of course, in Real Madrid, their whole team is just garbage. So any anything is up for grabs there. So I, th- I think this will be a semi-high-scoring game. Um, but I- I'm, I'm very excited. I- I'm really, really excited. I don't know who's going to win. I'm going for a 2-2 draw, and that's my Uh, I'm I'm going to be a little more adventurous. I I'm, think that Barcelona wins this weekend. And I think what we saw, especially from today against Shakhtar, the spaces that 
Real Madrid are leaving, it's it's a lot of it is down the wings, and and they got really abused, I think, by Shakhtar in that first half um, by the wing play, and it's. Uh, not something that's going to get much better over the weekend, especially as you said, if the, if Barcelona go out and play with natural wingers, I mean, this could all be very different if Antoine Griezmann is playing out on the wing. Right. But like you said, the guy's providing verticality in, in with Barca that plus my concerns with the mid, with the midfield from Madrid compared to a midfield in Barcelona that I think is more, balanced and more cohesive, especially. Um, I, I think that they win the midfield battle on, on the weekend. If we're going to see the same midfield of uh, Modric, Fede Valverde and Casemiro, as we saw uh, today against Shakhtar Donetsk. So I, I think that's where Barcelona wins the game is, is in the midfield and the ability to be able to, to take advantage of those spaces behind Marcelo and Ferlan Mendy. I 100% agree, and I think going back to your your point about balance, if Sergio Busquets, who is now kind of playing a more advanced double pivot role, gets overrun, I'm feeling a little more comfortable that he has a supporting cast behind him, which means that a Fede Valverde, who, like I said, can only run in straight lines and just carry the ball. That's all he's good at. I, I still maintain that. He's going to run into three players just by design. So... It, it see on paper, it seems to work well. The structure that Coleman has put together, especially for a Real Madrid side that have not been cohesive in the middle of the park. The point where I don't know what the starting eleven for Real Madrid are going to be this weekend. I wish I could tell you that it's going to be. I mean, in all honesty, I think it's going to be Casemiro, Tony Cruz, and. Isco or Modric? I don't know. I don't think Valverde starts. Um, but, <laughs> I mean, I could be so wrong. It's not even funny. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that and just say I'm really looking forward to this game. Yeah, and here's hoping that Griezmann is not played out on the wing because – if he is allowed to play Justin behind Messi or, or, you know, through the middle in any, in any sort of sense, that's another really good backwards pressing midfielder for Barcelona to have. And that, that would make me feel even more sure about their ability to win the midfield battle as Griezmann is he'll do what Messi doesn't do anymore, which is track run back into the midfield and, and harass Madrid's midfielders and try to win the ball back. It's, it's something that I hope that we see. I, I, I don't think we will because I, I think there is a genuine, um, genuine like positive vibes between Kuman and uh, Coutinho. So I believe we'll probably see Coutinho play again this weekend, but I, I still feel very confident. I feel confident that Barcelona will be able to win the midfield battle with Madrid. And I think that'll just give them the edge. I love, I love that prediction. I'm just, I, I'm not confident to put 20 bucks on it yet. So we'll have to see on Saturday. Rian and I will be watching that game together. And of course, we bring you our reactions after the yeah. game. But Rian, at least before, before, yeah, sorry. The, the, one last thing I almost forgot to ask. What is the score line 
that gets Zinedine Zidane after, granted, two losses, two loss, two straight losses is almost never a fireable offense, but two straight losses plus a hammering by Barcelona could be a fireable offense. Well, uh, so that takes me to Ellie's. What's the scoreline that gets Zinedine Zidane fired this weekend? I think to answer that question, you have to understand this mysticism that Zidane has over Real Madrid and at Real Madrid. A, a player, obviously a legend, as everyone knows that, but as a manager, also somewhat of a legend, but not an extreme tactical, you know, brilliant mind, right? Not a pep of the world. But when he has good games, he he's just elevated to another level, to like God level by Real Madrid fans, Real Madrid players. He's just looked up like a mystic character, hence all the black magic, you know, comparisons. Um, but when he loses, all of his flaws come out. All all of them. I mean, the, this man doesn't have tactical awareness. All he's good at is man management. Um, he doesn't know how to organize the squad, doesn't know his best 11. All of that comes out. So the only way that I can see a situation where Zidane is fired this weekend, which in all likelihood, 99% chance that he will not be fired after this game, um, almost regardless of how it goes. But if I had to choose a scoreline, it's, it's a, a situation where Barcelona score five goals. I think because five goals is very historic in just the Barcelona mysticism side of things. And in Spanish, the word for, you know, hand, manita, is basically representing a five. So five goals. Um, PK also famously held, held that up in uh, November of 2011 when um, Barcelona played Real Madrid in Marino's first Clasico and won five nil famously also held it up when they beat Real Madrid two years ago, five uh, one at Camp Nou. So it, it holds some sort of level of symbolism within Barcelona. So if I had to go with the scoreline, it's a, it's a scoreline where Barcelona certainly score five goals. I don't think Real Madrid would probably have to score that many goals at that point, obviously um, one, maybe two, um, but yeah, any any sort of high scoring Barcelona five plus goals w- would definitely put him on the chopping block. I'll give you that. Yeah, I agree with you. He probably won't get fired over the weekend, but a loss, a convincing loss, a loss that looks like Barcelona could have scored more and, and Madrid are struggling in the attack as we've seen them struggle in the attack since this season began. And a lot of times during the end of last season, I think another poor showing in, in terms of uh, chance creation and that on top of a Barcelona team that was the talk of the entire summer for all the bad reasons. If they are <laughs> able to come in and just absolutely handle Madrid over the weekend, then yeah, there's going to be a lot of question marks around around um, Zidane and um, and you know it could be just a matter of time before sus I think know. is the word that you're looking for punched yeah. okay yes <laughs> also be, yeah, also yeah. a narrative that's, what, uh, that, that's narrative. what could start after this weekend if they lose that that narrative could start those rumors could start flying around 
for sure. Oh, I'm sure Florentino will be all over that too. It's not just going to be a rumor, but yes, I, I agree. So very interesting game, obviously coming up this weekend. I'm for the best. I'm expecting mediocre. So Rian, I will catch you on Saturday as I come by to watch the game. And uh, of course, as always, everyone watching, thanks for listening or watching, listening. I I told you, I forgot English for this podcast, but thank you guys for listening. And we'll be back soon with another update. Thanks, guys.